Good morning. Uh, Today's scripture is reading from Psalm 42 and 43. Psalm 42. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all the day long, Where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul. How I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me. Therefore I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon from Mount Mazar. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me, while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Psalm 43. Vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause against an ungodly people. From the deceitful and unjust man, deliver me. For you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy, and I will praise you with the lyre, O God my God. Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Well, good morning, everybody. Some of you know me. My name is Madison Wyman. Some of you don't know me. My name is still Madison Wyman. Um, oh, thank goodness you guys laughed at that. I wrote that. I thought that was the worst joke in the world. And my wife told me it was good, so I kept it. But whew, awesome. This is going to go great now. Uh, <laughs> so I used to uh, spend most of my time down here in Troy. And then a couple years ago, my wife stole me up to Saratoga, and I've been up there for a couple years now. I've been an intern, a, a pastoral intern there, um, about, about three years, I think, right? And um, it's, been, it's, it's really cool to come back and just, for two weeks now, I was here last week when we did the combined service, now I'm here again, and it's just, it's great to see so many new faces and so many old faces, and I just wanted to encourage you guys that I'm always struck by how much joy this specific congregation has. Like, it is just permeable in the room when, when I'm here. So thanks, Rob. Thank you all for that. It's just such a good experience to be here. Um, I'm going to continue in the psalm series that we're doing this summer. We're doing it in Saratoga as well. And the psalms are a little bit different to preach. They're, you know, they're poems. So they don't break up as linearly and as, you know, block-like as some of the letters and some of the other pieces of scripture that we read. Uh, One of the things I think that we recognize as we 
read Psalms, we hear Psalms, is that we see that they're emotionally very honest. If we're paying attention, oh, sorry about that, we're often actually really scared to acknowledge that we have emotions and to project those emotions to ourselves and to God and to others. I was listening to a computer scientist do a lecture. I know, fun, right? And he said, yeah, I, I prefer to work with computers to not people because when computers go wrong, they give you a warning error message, 404, whatever, and it's very clear what the problem is. But when people go wrong, you get emotions and they're anything but clear and you don't know what to do with them. We can hide, we can mask, and we can lie to ourselves about our emotions, or we can be honest with them, like the psalmists are. When we hide, like Adam and Eve in the garden, when we cover our emotions up, when we lie to ourselves, what we're actually doing is we're destroying any path that we might have to work through those emotions. If you're constantly telling yourself, well, I, sh I shouldn't be feeling this, I, this isn't right, I shouldn't be feeling this, and you're ignoring it, that's not actually stopping you from feeling it. You're still feeling it. So it's best that we bring these things into the light. And when we do, we want, at once validate and feed emotions that should be there, and the emotions that grow and thrive in the light. And we also kill and stop the growth of emotions that shouldn't be there. We see this all the time in the Psalms. We see good emotions, virtuous emotions, right alongside depraved emotions. Love and hate cohabitate the Psalms because love and hate cohabitate the human heart. And the psalmists know that when you honestly express love and hate to God, in the face of God, love grows and hate shrinks. This morning, I want to look at two Psalms, as Kyle said, a double header. And it's, it's not two sermons, it's not an hour and a half, it's one sermon, because it's really one psalm. Um, most of the commentators I read, in fact, all of the commentators I read said that due to the textual similarity between these two, this is probably one psalm. And it was actually an error to split them up when the chapter numbers were added later. Um, that was in around 1207 to 1228, by Stephen Langton, the Archbishop of Canterbury. So you can blame him if you'd like. But it just goes to show whenever we add something additional to Scripture, it can sometimes be helpful, but often, if we rely on it too much, it just messes things up. So I'm going to walk through these two psalms, this one psalm, really, as they're presented to us. And the psalmist is, in real time, in a real situation, working through a very complex set of emotions that he has, and I'm hoping just by walking through those next to him that we can learn something about how to express and work through our emotions in the face of God. And before I do that, I want to just take a moment to pray. Father, we uh, thank you for bringing us here. Thank you for waking us up this morning. Lord, I pray you would uh, empty me of all the uh, pride and self-glory that may still be residual and that you would fill me with your spirit for your people. I pray you would open people's minds, hearts, and ears to hear your word, Lord. Thank you. Amen. So part of the reason that people think these psalms belong together is they both contain this repeated refrain. 
Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. And we see that as the author comes back to this stanza, every time he's coming back and he's adding nuance, he's adding depth, he's adding experience in each stanza. The main point that we'll see in all of this is that God is present in our trials and that we must hope in his promise to deliver and restore us. God is present in our trials and we must hope in his promise to deliver and restore us. And as we work through this, we're going to take the exact words that he uses. It kind of maps really well. He's got three stanzas. There's three lines really to this refrain. And in each stanza, he works these out in peace. So he says, why are you cast down, O my soul? And then he asks the question, why are you in turmoil within me? And then he centers himself and says, hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. That said, we're going to jump right into the first stanza this morning. As a deer pants for flowing stream, so my soul pants for you, O God, my soul thirsts for God, the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? He opens up with a scene of drought. This deer is not panting because he has water. He's panting because he doesn't have water. And the psalmist is likewise panting because he does not feel God's presence, that refreshing, flowing stream. To call God the living God is to invoke Imageries of a moving, living river. When a body of water is flowing, things can't sit and get all gross and bad and poisonous. When it's flowing, things don't do that. And you can drink from that water freely and get life and refreshment. That's the image he's drawing on here. Just for a moment, I want to talk about this feeling of longing that the psalmist has, because I know I read the psalm, and I hear, oh, my soul pants for God. My immediate thought is, you know, some days my soul doesn't. And the, fr- the first place I want to go with that is guilt, and I want to say, man, I must not be a good enough Christian, because I don't always feel like I think I should feel. And often, this is just because the transformation of the heart and the soul tails behind the transformation of the mind in our journey of sanctification. Right? Often God's going to change our minds and renew our minds, the language of Romans 12, and then coming after that slowly, steadily, and surely is the re- reformation of our desires, of our hearts, and of our souls. So when you read something like this and it says, oh, my soul pants for God, and your soul sometimes doesn't, but your mind says, no, I know my soul should. That's the starting point. That's not like, that's not like, oh, I'm not a good Christian. That is part of being a Christian, that your mind is being renewed as well. You know what is good, and you know what you should long for, and you're going to know it before you actually feel it. Maybe this is just me, and I'm just preaching to myself at this point, but I think it's a common occurrence. And if you are in the point this morning where you can feel that and you're like, yeah, my soul does long for God, I know. 
I know that he refreshes. I know he provides that. Hold on to it. Journal it. Write it. Keep this point of your life in your memory because, as the psalmist points out, you're going to need it. Because there will be points and seasons in life where it won't be as clear. And you won't know. And you'll have to look back and you say, ah, okay. Yep. He's still true. What was happening back here is going to happen up here. And I'm just in the middle of something right now. So it's important. The psalmist says, when shall I come and appear before God? That's his longing. And he says, my tears have been my food day and night. Instead of being fed by the streams of the living God, he's being fed by a stream of his own tears. Why is he crying? He goes on to say, while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? So we've got some people now who are surrounding the psalmist asking this question, questioning the presence of God in his life. And we'll talk a little bit more about these people, but for now, just notice how deeply these words seem to cut the psalmist, how deeply they affect him. It's a question his soul was already wrestling with. He's already thinking about this, but he's, he's asking this question not in doubt, in confidence that restoration is coming. These people asking these questions only have the worst intentions for asking them. They're mocking him. They're ridiculing him. And it's here that we kind of see a second part of what you could call this psalmist relational drought. It's the fact that he is alone in a place without friends or family or loved ones, brothers and sisters in Christ, to come alongside him. It's a relational drought of the people that he sees as important to his faith journey. He says this in verse 4. He says, these things I remember as I pour out my soul. How I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude keeping festival. He remembers the people of God and the worship of God in context of that community. And that experience, that truth is what keeps him tethered in very lonely times, very hard times. And it's worth saying that this experience that the psalmist has is hardly everyone's experience. For many, the people of God, his church, are not something to be remembered for the sake of joy, but to be forgotten in the face of trauma and deep hurt. It's just a truth that we have to acknowledge. Sometimes people get hurt in church. And those people, for those people, maybe you're here this morning, it's hard. It's really hard. And if you are here this morning, you're here in this community listening, just thank you for being here, coming back. It's not easy. It's something that can only happen by the grace of God, that transformation. Thanks for your faithfulness to God and his people. And it's my prayer that this community, these people, would be the people that God uses to restore the joy of his presence in your life. It's what kept hope alive in the psalmist's heart. And it's worth saying, by the way, that this worship that he experiences, the worship we experienced this morning, is the first step in changing our hearts. When we sit here and we acknowledge truths about God, often, that's the first song we sang, often we don't always feel those truths. 
but we sing them nonetheless so that God can start to work on us. So we can start to say, yeah, you don't feel that, but you know it. And you're going to get there. I'm going to work in you. I'm going to keep that churn going. After the psalmist remembers the people of God, remembers the worship that changed him so deeply that we get the first utterance of that refrain. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Well, we can answer that first question now pretty succinctly. Why is his soul cast down? He's in the midst of an immense relational drought. He's alone. He feels so alone. Yet he's asking his soul, why? He knows. The second the verse coming after that, he just says, my soul is cast down within me. He acknowledges it. But he's asking himself, why? He knows that in the light of the truth that he knows, he shouldn't be despairing. His, the truth he knows is colliding with his experience. And this is the turmoil that he starts to unpack in the next stanza. He continues to draw on that imagery of water that we saw in the first stanza, but now it's in the context of a storm. We go from having not enough water to having entirely too much water. He says in verse 6, My soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon from Mount Mazar. By the way, this is just a little brief glimpse into where he's exiled. He's on the other side of the Jordan River from Jerusalem. So this is Israel, right? Here's Jerusalem. River Jordan. He's way up here, right? This is actually where a lot of the wilderness wanderings of numbers take place. It's up in this northern wilderness on the other side of the Jordan. Verse 7, he says, Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. Notice, where God was absent before, he felt absent, he felt far away, he's now very present. These waves are his waves. These breakers are his breakers. By the way, I had to look up what breakers were. Um, I don't know if I'm the only one, but apparently when the waves that come in and crash along the shore, they break along the shore, those are breakers. And uh, I had, we were down in um, South Carolina uh, for our like our first family vacation ever in March in uh, May, and in like one of the only moments I got to myself, I was like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go out into the ocean. I'm going to just. And so I put on my swimsuit and I felt like a big man. I know I'm short, but I still felt big. And I'm walking into the ocean, like I'm going to stand nice, nice and tall and firm. And as soon as I got out there, sand just comes out out, out of my feet. Wave crashes over me. I just fall right down. I felt like, I'm like, I look like such an idiot right now. <laughs> like, I thought I was going to be in there like, I've been working out. I feel good. And then I'm gone. And it's this experience, this overwhelming power in the sense of the psalmist's weakness that he's conjuring up. It's this experience. He appeals to language from Genesis when he says deep calls to deep. You'll remember that in the first couple chapters, the first couple verses, mind you, of the Bible, it says the creation was a deep. I can't remember the words right now. I'm stumbling here, but it uses the word deep to describe the unformed 
uncreated nature of a chaotic cosmos. And this is the word and the image that the author says, this is me right now. This is my state. I am in a place such that I feel like there's no mark of your order in my life. I feel completely uncreated. I feel like a mess. You'll also remember, though, that in that same verse in Genesis, when it says, when it uses the word deep, it's to say that the face, the spirit of God, was hovering over the deep, right? God's still present in this trial, in this storm. And the psalmist acknowledges that. He says in verse 8, By day the Lord commands his steadfast love. Quite the opposite of something chaotic, no? Steadfast? And at night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. But this brief moment of clarity is again interrupted by his questions. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of my enemy? He acknowledges God's steadfast love. He knows it's true. He even calls him my rock, the very image of steadfastness. Yet, he accuses God of having forgotten him. He says, if you're present, why aren't you intervening? Why do I continue to be oppressed? Why is life the way it is right now if you're an all-loving, all-powerful God? He continues. His enemy's questions are now taunts. He says in verse 10, as with a deadly wound, Robert Alter, who's a scholar, by the way, translates this as actually murder. He says, as with murder in my bones, my adversaries taunt me while they say to me all day long, where is your God? That question still haunts him. Where is God? Is he just hovering there over my mess, watching it all happen? We expect an answer, but it's not time for one yet. Instead, he comes back to the refrain. Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. We understand that turmoil now, right? His knowledge of God's character, of that truth, is now colliding with his experience in a way that he can't He can't compile those two things. Those things just aren't meshing for him. He can't figure out how they connect. I think whether in, you know, maybe small situations or much larger, much more significant situations, we find ourselves here from time to time. We find ourselves in a place, in a situation where we can't possibly understand how this is part of God's plan, how this situation this trial can be used for what God wants to use it for. We just, we can't see that. Where do we go with that? Where does the psalmist go with that? He reminds his soul, hope in God. But first he gets angry. And again, anger is not a good emotion. In fact, when it's expressed by humans, it's almost always sinful. But again, pretending you're not angry doesn't mean you're not angry anymore. You're still angry. It's still happening under the surface. 
At first, we see his anger directed at his enemies. He says in verse 1 of Psalm 43, Vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause against an ungodly people. For the deceitful and unjust man, deliver me. He assigns three traits to these enemies now. He says they're ungodly, they're deceitful, and they're unjust. We don't know all that they've done to him. All we know for sure is that they've mocked and questioned the presence of his God. And he's in a place where he knows the truth, and he knows that God is present, so he rightly calls them deceitful. But it is that truth, the fact that God is present, that causes him to a moment, for a moment, direct his anger at God. In verse 2 he says, For you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? He repeats the same question. Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? But before, where God, his rock, has forgotten him, now God, his refuge, has rejected him. That's much more personal, isn't it, right? A rock is something we stand on and forgotten means, oh, well, you slipped my mind. A refuge is something we run to, something we hide ourselves in. And to be rejected is, I see you, and I'm looking the other way. The psalmist is really worked up. He's really upset. This is getting really personal for him. And it's when the personal collides with the theological that we get some of these really hard problems to solve. He's saying, I know you're here. I know you're here. Why aren't you saving me? Why do I suffer? When will it stop? And these are questions we ask and that we almost never get sure answers in the moment. At least usually not the answers we want. The fog of war clouds our minds and we can't see the battlefield clearly. And we don't know the whole plan, nor could we understand it if we did. And we find ourselves here. All we can do is follow the last orders our commander gave us. We must hold fast to what we know to be true and to who we know to be faithful. The psalmist says in verse 3, send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Then I will go to the altar of God, to, my, to God my exceeding joy, and I will praise you with the liar, liar, oh God, my God. The only thing that is steadfast and solid in the midst of the psalmist's trials is the truth of God's character and his consistent faithfulness. The only thing that brings light into the darkness of his heart is God's love and his promises. He knows that he will be restored. It's been promised to him. He knows that he will enter back into the presence of God. So he pleads with God, send forth your light, send forth your truth. If I can just see those, if I can just see you, know who you are, and see the next step, I'll trust it will get me home. And again, we don't get an ultimate conclusion here. We come back to the refrain, why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. 
for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. We don't need to know how this will end, this current trial, this present suffering. We just need to know that it's not the end. We don't need a conclusion. We need to know that this, what we're going through right now, isn't the conclusion. We need hope. Hope recognizing what God has promised he is faithful to bring about. This assumes we know what God's promises are because without knowing what God has promised to us, we cannot hope that he will bring it about. So what are some of God's promises? To all of us this morning, what are some of his promises that he will bring about? Hebrews 13, 5. God has said, never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. 1 Peter 4, 12 through 13. Dear friends, don't be surprised at the fiery trials you are going through as if something strange were happening to you. Instead, be very glad. For these trials make you partners with Christ in his suffering so that you will have the wonderful joy of seeing his glory when it is revealed to all the world. In 2 Timothy 4, 18. This, these are like some of the last words Paul writes down before he's executed. He says in 2 Timothy 4.18, The Lord will rescue me from every evil attack and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. He will not tarry forever. He will deliver us. He will restore us, though we may not know when. But we do know how. And that's a little bit of light and truth that we have that the psalmist didn't have. He could only see the edges of it, glimpse the contours of it. Jesus, the very presence of God in human flesh, is the embodiment and the fulfillment of these promises and of the hope in their fulfillment. When he came to earth all those years ago, he lived out this psalm. You remember on the cross, he was mocked. Where is your God? If you're the son of God, why doesn't he come get you off that cross? Why doesn't he come and end your suffering? Why doesn't he come vindicate you? And he could have ended it, right? He could have called hosts of angels to his side and vindicated himself in that moment, but instead he suffered through all the pain. And ultimately, he died. The author of life itself subjected himself to death, the penalty for our sin. Why? So that we could be vindicated and so that we could be delivered. When he rose from the dead, rose from the dead, <laughs> he robbed death of the power it has over us. Yes, we still die. All of us most likely in this room will. But there are silly mortal deaths that have no say 
on our eternity. They have no power. If we are in Christ, we are in the one who has defeated death. That's the promise we have, and it's summarized quite well in 2 Corinthians 4. You'll forgive me if I quote it in some length, but again, we either take away from Scripture or it doesn't go well. For God who said, let light shine out of the darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies so we do not lose heart. Though the outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day for this light, momentary affliction. It's preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are, un- are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. We have hope, even if we don't know exactly how our prison situation will end, where it will lead. Pastor Tori said this in a sermon once, and it was a long time ago. It was Minor Prophets. I think it was maybe Obadiah. I can't remember. But it stuck with me ever since. He said, I don't know how long the road will be, but I can take it if I know it leads home. Your road, your trials, your suffering this morning, if you are in Jesus, lead home. They do. And if you are not in Jesus, if you've never been in Jesus, I'd like you to consider him this morning. He offers hope. He offers steadfast love to anyone who would receive it, especially you. Especially you. I know I'm quoting at length a lot, but other people are just really good at writing stuff. So I'm going to end with a quote from a hymn by uh, Keith and Kristen Getty. They've given us so many great modern hymns, but this one particularly strikes me as maybe having been written by the psalmist of 42 and 43 on the other side of eternity. Uh, So I'll read this for you and we'll close. What is our hope in life and death? Christ alone. What is our only confidence that our soul to him belongs? Who holds our days within his hand? What comes apart from his command? And what will keep us to the end? The love of Christ in which we stand. What truth can calm the troubled soul? God is good. Where is his grace and goodness known in our great Redeemer's blood? Who holds our faith when fears arise? Who stands above the stormy trials? And who sends the waves 
to bring us nigh unto the shore, the rock of Christ. Unto the grave, what will we sing? Christ, he lives. And what reward will heaven bring? Everlasting life with him. There we will rise to meet the Lord, and sin and death will be destroyed, and we will feast in endless joy when Christ is ours forevermore. Oh, sing hallelujah. Our hope springs eternal hallelujah. Now and forever we confess Christ, our hope in life and death. Father, this morning we come perhaps tired, perhaps overwhelmed, not feeling the emotions we think we should and feeling emotions that we know we ought not to. Some of us are despairing. Some of us are troubled. We can't see the next step. We can't see you. Lord, I pray you would work in our hearts this morning. You would change them. You'd form them. You'd renew them. You'd recreate them into the image of Christ. You would give us clarity of your of the knowledge of your steadfast love and you would help us to hope not in anything else but in you. We thank you for the possibility of that in your son. Who you sent to make it possible. In Jesus' name. Amen.